What is up, Freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down. Sat back down with our good friend, Max Gagliardi, from the Talk Energy Podcast and Encoba. We got into it uh, in a good way. Talking about energy policy and the illogical nature of, of some of modern day energy policy throughout the world and how Bitcoin is getting integrated into the oil and gas industry. I think you guys are going to like it. This trip is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. We're right down the hall from here at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas on 6th and Congress. And right down the hall from where we're recording right now, they're building products that are going to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. Not only that, they're building financial products so that you can use your Bitcoin as collateral. They're building IRA products. They've got concierge service was going to onboard you, take you from zero to having a multi-sig volt set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats. They're going to walk you through the process. If you tell them the TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off. The way it works is you're going to have multiple video conference calls. They're going to get you comfortable with multi-sig, which is one of Bitcoin native, native properties, one of Bitcoin's native properties. They're going to get you comfortable with their Vault product, which implements a two or three multi-sig in which you hold two keys, Unchained holds one key. So you always have control of your Bitcoin, but Unchained is there. If you're ever in a pinch, you need them to be the second in the two or three signature quorum. They're going to get you hardware wallets. They're going to help you get them set up. They're going to do the whole shebang. Okay, go check out everything they have going on at Unchained.com. Again, if you want to do the white glove concierge onboarding service, tell them that TFTC sent you. You're going to get $50 off that package. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Coming to you live from the Czech Republic. They're the team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest Bitcoin mining pool in existence. And they're the team behind Brains OS Plus firmware, which helps you stack more sats with your hash. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus and you're not using it, you're an idiot. You're leaving sats on the table. Don't be an idiot. Download Brains OS Plus firmware if it's available. Hear what's miners coming soon, but again, not going to hold my breath. Ed Evenson, you liar. You said soon years ago. I define two years as not soon, okay? They also have insights.brains.com. Again, brains with two eyes. Uh, if you want to get a, a, a snapshot of everything that's going on in the mining ro- world from a data perspective, you want to look at profitability, cost of mine of Bitcoin, hash rate, difficulty, pool statistics, boom, insights.brains.com. They're also going to be hosting a mining conference in the Czech Republic in Prague this summer in June, the week of the 15th, whatever that week is. I believe the conference is on the 16th. I'm not going to be able to make it because I'm having a baby. Goddamn procreation gets in the way sometimes. Uh, go check out everything they have going on at Brains. Brains.com. Insights.brains.com. I think it's the Bitcoin Mining Conference.com. Could be wrong. Go check out that website. And if it's not affiliated with Brains, I say it to the wrong place. Sorry, Brains. It's what you pay for. This for it was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle, 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 Hoddle is here to leverage Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties as well to bring you a lending pro- platform, lend.hoddlehoddle.com with no KYC, no AML. The way it works is you put your Bitcoin in a two or three escrow wallet. You hold one key. Your counterparty in the trade holds one key and Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key as an arbitrator. Beauty of this is you don't have control of the Bitcoin. You can't move it in and out of the wallet. 
throughout the duration of your loan for obvious reasons. However, since you do have one key, you have visibility in the wallet so that you know that your SATs are not being rehypothecated. And they're going to be there at the end of the day if you're paying your loan back, plus the interest associated with it. So you put your Bitcoin in this multi-sig escrow, you get stablecoin liquidity. In return, you go spend those stablecoins however you see fit. And again, as long as you're paying that back, plus the interest involved with the loan, you're going to get your SATs back at the end of the loan. Alternatively, if you want to get yield on stable coins, if you're a stable coin guy or girl, excuse me, I just burp, burped again. You're going to uh, put your stable coins up to be lent out and you're going to get yield on that in the form of Bitcoiners using it and then paying you back interest. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Go check out the platform again. No KYC, no AML. Pure Bitcoin stablecoin. No fiat rails being touched there. Stablecoins do come at risk, but I would have argued they're like less risky than your traditional banking. Last but not least, this trip was brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin 2022. It's going to be the biggest fucking conference ever. Not only Bitcoin, just in the world, any conference, a calculator conference, science conference, a football conference, whatever, like Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than all of them. It's in South Beach, Miami, April 6th to 9th. It's a four day event. The first day, industry insiders if you're like in the industry you want to be grinding you want to be meeting people that are doing things you're going to want to sign up for day one day two and three are general conference days you're gonna have your open source stage you're gonna have your mining stage you're gonna have ceos like michael saylor that that guy jack mallers president naiba kaylee president of el salvador is going to be there apparently he's got a big announcement here he's remodeling his kitchen. He's gonna he's gonna have a, a slideshow that just walks through what he's thinking. And then day four is gonna be a, a first ever Bitcoin music festival. Logic's gonna be there. Dead Mouse is gonna be there. Run the Jewels is gonna be there. I hear Neil Young showing up, uh, and and J- Joni Smith as well. They're gonna they're gonna crawl out of their retirement homes and play a few songs. I don't think they understand the crowd they're gonna be playing in front of, but. Apparently, you're going to show up. I kid, I kid. I hope. <laughs> it would be cool if they showed up. You know, have a nice conversation. Like, hey. Do you really think you have that much influence anymore? Do you really think people care? I like Harvest Moon. I like California, Joni Mitchell. But I don't think you should have that influence. Uh, there's going to be a live rabbit hole recap there, too. Uh, Matt and I are going to do it. I believe day three. If you haven't bought tickets to the event yet, and again, South Beach, Miami, April 69th, biggest fucking conference ever. Not, not, not even Bitcoin ever. Dental conference, insurance conference, teachers conference, iron workers conference. This is bigger than all of them combined. Go to b.tc slash conference. Use the promo code TFTC and you're going to get 10% off your tickets. Uh, I believe tickets go up February 17th. Could be wrong. Just know that ticket prices go up at some date in the future from now. So you want to get them sooner rather than later if you're going to go. Again, use the code TFTC. You'll get 10% off. Biggest fucking conference ever. Do you want to be a part of it? I'm going to be there. Hope to see you there. Enjoy. Okay.
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What's up? Conference life. How is it, sir? It's tiring, man. It's, tiring. <laughs> it's good. That was good. I a, saw a bunch of cool Bitcoiners yesterday, so that was good. There was a lot of oil and gas people there as well. There was a good amount. There was, uh, there was a high interest level. You know, It's like I'm sitting here, whatever, at some table, and I hear the guy next to me talking about some flared gas well or something. And he's like talking to one of his buddies on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, there's some oil and gas people. Uh, is there FOMO in the oil and gas industry yet, do you think? Uh, yeah, there's definitely. I mean... There's either the complete deniers that are like, this isn't happening and this is not real. And then there's like the people that get it, but don't get it, but want to. And then there's the people that really get it and they're trying to, to make it happen. So. How does this change oil and gas? I think it like a fundamental level on the gas. I mean, I don't know about oil as much, um, but on the gas side, it's just another way to monetize energy. That's a, I mean, it's a high value and, you know, look, it's, it's a business where you've got commodities that are volatile I and mean, people are used to that, right? Oil can go negative. We didn't think it could, but it did. Uh, gas can spike in prices, but this can be another way to monetize a well or monetize energy. And it's a completely different type of exposure. Um, and it's like the highest value right now. I mean, and the value will change on hash price, but today it's a really, really high value um, for natural gas. I just think that like the time that it's going to take to really change things it's you know these companies a lot of them the big companies are a lot of older people at the top you know and the way you get to the top of a big company is you don't rock the boat you know you're not like an innovator you're just somebody that's like a administrator of a large oil company uh that's gonna be the small and mid-sized guys and then i think you'll it'll be interesting to see if like midstream picks it up because it makes a lot of sense for midstream i mean they already control all the gas because it's mm -hmm. like all dedicated to them so like there's instances where you know upstream guys can can drill and extract the gas and do it themselves. But 90 something percent of gas is dedicated to a pipeline. They, you know, their whole shtick is to squeeze value out of you. So like I could see it toward the midstreams at some point or just like, we're just going to keep a portion of your gas. We're going to mine with it. And then we're not going to pass that back. Just like they do with natural gas liquids or these other things, right? I think they get a bottle, they get a hold of you by the wellhead and they exploit value, charge you fees, maybe pass back a little bit of that value. But um, that, that could be where it goes eventually. I think right now, the next however many years, it's going to be small entrepreneurial guys getting after it. Um, we're already seeing it. What do you think about like cash flows being able to subsidize mining? Because as a miner, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. You want to hold as much Bitcoin as possible. Publicly traded miners are, are being very successful at being able to hold their Bitcoin because they have access to the capital that public markets provide. But I've always thought just intuitively, maybe my intuition's wrong uh, in the oil and gas industry, that there's enough cash flow from natural gas and oil sales that you could subsidize a mining operation and make it so you don't have to sell your Bitcoin. Is this a, yeah. a correct intuition? Am I on to something? 100%. Whether you have oil and gas or whether you want to do like hosting or whether you've got different ways you can bring in revenue streams, like if you're a miner. And so maybe it's you have oil that goes with the gas and you can sell that. Um, maybe it's just extra gas, right? Like you buy into some wells and you've got this amount here that you can mine with. 
And mining is obviously very capital intensive. So you, maybe you don't want to build out the full mine today. You build out some of it, sell the rest of the gas to market, and hopefully you can use that revenue stream to offset any OPEX, whether that's the power costs or whether that's just general operating costs. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it really does. And like the vertical integration of it makes a lot of sense. It's just owning the wells or owning the production, however you want to do it. There's a lot of different creative ways, but having that, you know, because if you buy wells or buy production up front, like that's your power cost. You're basically buying it all today. Maybe you have generation costs, but if you own that as well, it's just maintenance. So you've, you know, your month to month, nut that you're having to solve for is really low. So if there's a bear market, prices drop, you know, you've got a lot of different levers. If you've got oil sales or gas sales, you can, that's going to bring some money in, which is good. Since you already bought all that gas, like, yes, there's operating costs for a well, but, you know, hopefully whatever that revenue can cover those plus some, and then your month to month, like if you're not paying for the power, you're just maintaining a generator. Like, I don't know what your cents per kilowatt hour is if you look at it just on a go forward basis, mm -hmm. but it's low. Um, Cause you're kind of like, you kind of have to amortize it all, right? Like if you buy all the gas up front and you buy the power gen, you spread that out and you say, well, my effective cent per kilowatt hour is this, but, but on a month to month basis, you're not really paying anything. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, again, my intuition, my thesis, what I think is going to happen, I think it's going to get integrated in oil and gas throughout the stack. And then, and I think we're starting to see movement towards that in Russia, we're going to see oil be sold for sats. And when that happens, that's going to be crazy because you just have, I mean, oil, energy, basis of society, yeah, the amount of buying pressure. That right. would be induced by oil and gas companies demanding to be paid in Bitcoin. Way off. Probably seems very risky to many operators right now, but that's where we're headed. And I think, like you said, the medium to small size guys are best positioned to number one, mine Bitcoin. And then I would argue, number two, at some point, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but within this decade, begin demanding that if they're going to sell their molecules to market, uh, they get sats in return. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, especially like you're saying in these countries where uh, they don't want to use the dollar. It's another alternative, right? Um, Rumors are swirling about Russia right now. Right. And it makes sense. And like, it gets back to this broader theme around, can it be this kind of floor price for energy, which sounds ridiculous or like, you know, Bitcoin, or maybe not the floor price is not the right way to look at it, but be a peg it's a price on energy that like everybody looks at it and says, and it's like yesterday talking to uh, like Stronghold and he's saying we could sell power to the grid. He's like, but why would we? And same with like uh, PRTI. It's like, why would we? We've got this ability to mine Bitcoin. Similar to the demand response stuff in Texas. It's like, if it makes sense from an economic standpoint to monetize my energy in another way, I'll do that. But the base case for a lot of these guys that are getting smart is kind of, it's Bitcoin. It's like, this is my base case because it's the highest value today. If that changes, I've got a lot of flexibility, especially if you're like a mobile miner, modular, you can do different things. I mean, if you own a power plant, you're kind of, kind of there. Um, <laughs> kind of anchored to if that. You've got, yeah. If you've got, you know, uh, windstone or whatever, you're, you're anchored there. Um, but if you're mobile and you can be opportunistic, you know, it's like, uh, you can always pick up your units and move them. If you find a better spot, um, you can always... If you are on grid, you can always sell power back. I mean, I, I just think it's going to get to this point where it's like people run this scenario where they're like, what's the value of this asset with Bitcoin mining? And that's already happening. And I think that as that gets more widespread 
and it should, because if you're a fiduciary of a company and you have the ability to sell your natural gas for two fifty net of fees, even if gas is four bucks, you got to pay a bunch of fees. You're paying two dollars and fifty. You get two dollars and fifty cents, or you could get twenty five dollars. You need to be exploring the option to get twenty five dollars or whatever the number is now. I don't even looked recently, but whatever it comes out to be on an MCF basis, converted to Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody in oil and gas last night. I was looking for some advice about Bitcoin mining, and it's funny, like the the as I've my experience with Great American Mining and um, just speaking with a bunch of people in oil and gas throughout the last three years, specifically, like it's funny how everybody views project financing and the the decision to jump into this is dictated by IRR. And this came up last night in conversation with this person who was asking for advice about Bitcoin mining. Like, what's the IRR of this? It's like, I don't know. It's going to be astronomical, number one. But like, that's the wrong way to think of it. You're thinking of an IRR yeah. in dollar terms. But really, if you are in this, it's going to be long-term. It's going to be an integral part of your business. You don't really think about IRR and like, what is your dollar return? And I, I, I vehemently tried to convince this person, like, stop thinking IRR in dollar terms and think about how many sats can you accumulate? Like, just try to accumulate as many sats yeah. as possible. And that should be your goal. You shouldn't even think about IRR. The IRR is going to be like disgusting, disgustingly massive because number one, the dollar is inflating. Yep. Um, and so like the, the value, like inflation is going to increase the, the, the price of these assets, the underlying collateral of the assets, or excuse me, the underlying hard assets. And then number two, Bitcoin is going to uh, pump as well as demand for the utility of a peer-to-peer distributed cash system increases. And so you're going to have the, the Bitcoin purchasing power increase. You're going to have inflation happening at the same time. So yes, IR is going to be massive. But what you really should be thinking about is how many fucking sats are sitting on your balance sheet at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think it, there's a project that I heard recently. I won't dox where it's at, but it's an oil and gas project. And it's one of the more ambitious ones that I've heard. And it is private equity backed, I believed. And he was just like the guy that's kind of getting it going. He's like, we can't hold, like, they're not going to let us hold anything. Like maybe like after we pay out the equipment, some, you know, year and a half, two years down the line, we can hold, you know, Bitcoin. But he was just like, they don't care. They just want to see an IRR. They want to see, you know, a return on capital. And I'm kind of just like, then don't mine. Like, why are you mining then? I mean, like you could just go buy Bitcoin if you're not going to hold it. I mean, like if the, the benefit is that you're getting it and you get it for cheaper by mining it in theory, if you're good and you have cheap energy. And so it's like, if you're not going to hold it, then uh, you're not going to get like run any scenario. I mean, if you got to pay taxes, pay taxes, maybe you can accelerate depreciation and avoid that in year one or pay less in year one. So maybe you got to sell some to pay that. Or if you have other income streams, pay the taxes with that. But any scenario, like you're mining Bitcoin in theory, because you should believe in it. Like this, like what it's going to do, right? <laughs> if it's just a way to like, hey, I'm going to monetize the gas and get a little bit more money. That's fine. But it's a lot of risk and execution. And there's just a lot involved with it. And so if you're really not buying into Bitcoin itself as the technology and the network, and then I think it's a struggle for me to tell you that you should be mining. I mean, I, there's still reasons to do it because you can, in theory, make more money than selling the gas. But I think holding it, and then if you look at the models, like if you run a model on it and you say, I cash out every day, all of it. And then you run these different decks or these different scenarios. But if you run like an even slightly optimistic scenario where like Bitcoin increases modestly in price over a five-year period, you're much better off holding it. I mean, the MOIC, which is the return on invested capital, the multiple on invested capital is much higher 
by holding it till the end or till some later period. And so I don't know. It's just if, if you're not going to hold it, that's fine. Um, some guys got to sell some portion of it to pay expenses. But if you're not, if you don't believe in Bitcoin at all and you don't want to hold like a material amount of it, then it's just hard for me to recommend that you start mining. I don't know. And if you're out there and you're in oil and gas and private equity and you're like, what's the IRR? <laughs> you're thinking wrong. You're it's thinking, high. you're thinking wrong. It's going to be massively high, but like you shouldn't even be thinking on return on invested capital. Yes, you will have a massive return on invested capital, but you should be thinking about how many fucking sats can I stack at the end of the day? Like there's 21 million Bitcoin, 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. How many of those finite amount are you going to get? You have access to the cheapest production of the electricity, arguably, that, that can get you these sats. Like, are you going to take advantage of that or are you going to get left behind? And so that's like in Houston last a few weeks ago. Now at this point um, at the, the, the meetup in the Bitcoin meetup in Houston, I was leading the panel and that was the last question I asked. And this is a provocative question and one uh, at that digital wildcatters event that we were at a couple months ago. Uh, can't name any specifics of the people that were involved, but I, I posed that question too. Like who becomes who first to oil and gas or other energy producers become Bitcoin miners or Bitcoin miners become oil and gas uh, companies and, and other types of energy companies. Like who becomes who first? It's going to, it'll mix. It'll be a combination. You know, there's going to certainly be some Bitcoin miners that decide I want to be a vertically integrated oil and gas producer and they're going to get into the space. And it'll probably be guys that are already in the space. They get into Bitcoin. I mean, it's kind of like what we're trying to do or what we are doing um, to a smaller degree. You know, but like some of these oil and gas, some of these major natural gas producers, they have a ton of energy. I mean, if you really look at like the energy density in nat gas, it's like, you know, what was it? There was one, I don't know, like Marcellus well that came along, like a monster, like 80 million a day. And that's like a hundred, you know, something megawatts. I don't even know the math. Maybe I'm making that up, but it's a huge amount of megawatts. Now that declines and it's a, that was a, you know, an outlier well, but that just gives you the sense of like, for a single project that maybe cost them 10 or $15 million, they can create a hundred, whatever megawatts. You could probably choke that back and have it at like 40 or 20 or something flat, you know, and you could mine a lot with it. and It would be very cheap to do so compared to a lot of other energy sources and you completely control it. You're not subject to the grid. You're not subject to, you know, I mean, yes, maybe air permitting type stuff. You got to work that out and you would be building like a, basically a mini power plant, but um, it just makes a lot of sense for it to happen. I think that, the oil and gas guys, part of it right now has been the distraction of higher oil and gas prices or getting people more distracted. I love, I love it. Go get that oil. Go get that oil. I'm going to go get those sats. Right. I mean, like, because people like, you know, when gas was cheap and oil was in the tank, I mean, everybody was kind of like, hey, this is the thing we can do right now. But now that that's all come back, people are, uh, I think, more focused on it again. I've seen groups that I thought were like, oh man, this is a pretty serious group, mid-sized group. They're going to get into this in a big way. Six months ago, whatever, eight months ago, making all these plans and then commodity prices come roaring back and you talk to them. They're like, Oh yeah, it's kind of on the back burner now. Like we're not, we're focused on traditional stuff because why not both? I, I, that's what I'm saying. I think it's the finite amount of capital. That's the other thing is that like oil and gas producers today aren't really in spin mode. They're kind of in like harvest mode. They were in spin mode for like every, whatever, 15 years or 10 years, uh, proving out all this acreage, drilling it out. And then now they've gotten punished by wall street for spending too much money, taking out too much debt. <laughs> right? Like all these investors are like, we're going to crush your stock price. I think it used to be oil and gas used to be double digit percentage of the S and P. I don't know the exact stat. It was high like 10, 15% of the S and P and it got as low as like 
in the low single digits, like 3% or 2% or something in terms of market cap. Um, so they've been beaten down now. And I mean, really oil and gas is still pretty cheap on an inflation adjusted basis. I mean, to get back to where the peak was in whatever that was to uh, late, late part of last decade or the 2000s, I think the inflation adjusted price of oil would have to be like 200 something dollars a barrel. Yeah, I think I saw Ellen Wald tweeting about this. Maybe earlier yeah, this somebody. Week. Um, it would have to be quite a bit higher. Yeah, which is like funny. People are like, oh, we're back at near $100 oil. It's like, yeah, we've also had... Uh, the dollar's <laughs> lost how much value in that time. <laughs> right. A lot. A lot. It's like real estate prices up 30% year on year. Real estate's crazy. Everything's crazy. I mean, like, and that's the thing that sucks about wages and you see it in real life. I mean, I remember even when I started in oil and gas in like 2010... Uh, I didn't make like a huge salary or anything. And I remember kind of bitching to my boss or telling, talking to like my dad. I'm like, hey, I'm only making this. And he's like, when I was in the 70s, I made that. Or I mean, it was like, they made $10,000 less or $15,000 less than I did. So he's like, I only made this when the 70s. I was like, that was the 70s. <laughs> I'm like, this is like, I'm barely making more starting out in the industry than what you started out, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. So wages are clearly not keeping up no. with the amount of inflation. Like it's not even close. No. No, not even close at all. And so what is your short-term, medium-term, long-term view on commodities prices, specifically oil and gas? I, it's hard to say. I hate predicting price, but I talk about it a lot. I think that natural gas, interestingly, the base case has been perpetual growth um, because of how good the rock is. Uh, we just have so, we just an ocean of gas in the Northeast, like literal ocean under the ground of natural gas, hundreds of years at least, maybe longer. Um, Haynesville, which is like Louisiana, um, kind of where Henry Hub and all the LNG export is. That's, there's a ton of gas there as well. Uh, and then you've got a lot of like gas coming out of the Permian, like associated gas. And so an associated gas is just gas that comes when they drill oil. So the Northeast, there's a lot of areas where it's just gas wells, or, you know, maybe there's some NGLs. Haynesville is pretty much, you know, mostly dry gas. Uh, which is just methane for people that don't know that the stuff you use to heat your home and what you would think of as natural gas. And the base case has been kind of perpetual growth. But what we've seen now, like look, in, look at New England, right? Like if price could drive supply, they wouldn't be importing natural gas on an LNG tanker from some foreign country and paying, you know, 10 times or 20 times what they could get just a few hundred miles away in the Marcellus Shale. But price doesn't always drive these things. It's politics. And so you've got material critical infrastructure projects that are getting blocked. Uh, for example, like out of the Northeast, like I don't know when we're going to have another big major pipeline. Like these things take years to get built. They're billions of dollars. They take years to get built and they have to go through a bunch of like FERC, these, appointed, these appointees, unelected bureaucrats in agencies like the uh, Federal Energy, whatever, Regulatory Commission, whatever FERC stands for. Uh, I'm probably going made fun of for not knowing that, but I think that's it. But basically they're appointees and they can block or you know, Stonewall, these projects that are critical infrastructure projects, Keystone Pipeline is another example. Uh, it's a popular one. Well, they block, they're trying to decommission ones that are already up. Was that one in Michigan they want to shut down? Yeah, line five or three or something. So, I mean, like back to the, how that affects price. It's like, look, it, in theory, we could just drill and drill and drill. We've got all these great resources and it would be good for he people here. Energy costs would be lower. Look what's happening in Europe. I mean, people are suffering and now they're talking about just subsidizing it. The government's going to give everybody <laughs> stimmy checks uh, because they did bad energy policy. Now they want to write them stimulus checks. They're going to do a bad uh, fiscal and monetary policy. Wow. Yeah. And so I think that for natural gas, I would have said historically that it's going to be low forever, the price like sub $3 or sub $4. But 
I think the floor has gotten higher because of these infrastructure restrictions. So I hope to see kind of a sustained three to four dollar gas price. I know that's not good for Bitcoin mining, but it's it makes the industry a little bit healthier. You can uh, people can make operators can actually make a return. Uh, but it could go higher. I mean, like, look at what we're seeing this winter. You see these big spikes. Like last winter, you saw these big spikes. What happened is we lost that cushion of uh, associated gas. So you had all this oil drilling, had a bunch of gas with it. Oil went negative. That gas dropped way off. And we got kind of complacent with that. We're like, oh, we got all this extra gas. It keeps prices low. Well, we lost that because of COVID. And then we had this cold winter storm and prices went crazy. This year, everybody spooked. Uh, front month prices have been high. And so long story short is I think that the uh, floor is higher for nat gas going forward. Oil is a world, you know, market. It's a world connected market. Gas is increasingly becoming it because of LNG, which is liquefied natural gas exports and imports. You can move it around the world, but oil is interesting. It's like a game theory. It's like a game theory around OPEC. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. like, what are they? The reality is these countries are taking a hit from COVID and from all this stuff, just like everybody else has. They now feel like before the US was drill, 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 the capital markets were supporting all the drilling. And so game theory said to them, we want market share so uh, we can crash the price and we gain market share and we can just flow more barrels. And then now it's almost, it's kind of like the prisoner's dilemma or whatever. And now it's like, you look at the US and they're not afraid of us anymore because the ESG propaganda a stuff- a bunch of pussies. Yeah, the ESG propaganda stuff, like it's not, there's, you know, activist investors now and all these Fuck boards. These. So let's dive into this. I mean, last time we talked about this on air, we were hammered at NAEP uh, yeah, yeah. in August of last <laughs> year. And we probably weren't as coherent as we could be, but a lot has happened since then. Yeah. And now, like from, I mean, I rail and I just tweeted earlier this morning, like it seems like people are waking up to the fact that ESG is a massive scam. But like even at that Digital Wildcatters event, again, can't name specifics of who was saying what, uh, like people were like, like in the natural, in the oil and gas industry, people were like trying to cater to these ESG zealots and it's like by selling gas with a certain type of ESG yeah, rating yeah. at a premium. It's all fucking bullshit. And by catering to these zealots that have led to policies which have made uh, America less energy independent, less energy secure. Uh, you are, as an industry, some actors are leading us down a wrong path by catering to these zealots. Well, it's never enough, you know? And it doesn't it's ever, never enough. It, it doesn't matter really, right? Like it, the, the goalposts move all the time. Look at Joe Rogan. I know. I mean, well, and to me, what you find is that the policies and things that they're pushing forward, and I've talked to you about this in the past, is that they don't, not only are they not working, they do like the opposite, right? Yeah, it's like they hurt poor people. Well, they hurt poor people because it makes prices higher and they're worse for the environment. If you want to call climate, you know, I look at the environment as like four pillars. It's like you got uh, water, air, uh, soil or whatever, earth, and you've got atmosphere. And it's like, if atmosphere is the only thing you care about, which is how much CO2 goes up, but you're sacrificing water and land and air quality, which you a lot of times have to, because look at California. It's like, oh, we don't want to produce oil here. It's like, well, you're producing it in these other countries, like the Mike Umbrose stuff. That you yeah, I was just about to say, like, let's like Mike Umbrose, such a G when it comes to this stuff. Because he lives in California and he's like, goes crazy watching it happen. But it's like, they're trying to get rid of California oil, which is arguably the cleanest oil in the world. I mean, if you even, I don't even like using words like clean, but it's highly regulated and it's a good resource. Not that the highly regulation part is good, but they've got great resources. It used to be one of the largest 
if not the largest at one point, uh, oil producing state. It's fallen way off. And they're doing all these policies to kill the industry, but then they're importing it from Ecuador and Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And it's like, they're and it's going on tankers where they're burning bunker fuel and shipping it across the ocean. And like, if you look at all the major oil spills, they're from tankers for the most part. There's been a few from drilling rigs, but most of the oil spills are from tankers. And it's because they won't let it produce domestically in a pipeline in Bakersville and then ship it over to uh, the refineries. No, they want to import it from these countries. And it's like Iraq flares four times uh, the gas that California produces in a year, flares it, and they're getting their oil from them. So it's, it's not better for the environment. It's not safer. You've got the risk of oil spills and all these things. It's just kind of this not in my backyard LARPing. <laughs> it's, not, um, it's not cheaper either. It's not cheaper either. Like their gasoline prices are the highest in the country. So there's nothing, it's not even helping the climate or the environment. It's just worse for everything. It's helping people feel better about themselves. Uh, when they really shouldn't. You should feel worse about yourself if you're pushing these policies and you're uh, somebody in the public who's cheering them on. Like you're making life worse for not only yourself, but poor people and the rest of America. And again, if you want to think critically, think logically and actually do some good, like this is not the answer. This is actually the exact opposite. No, you want to produce as much energy as we can here um, because we can control it. And if you're concerned about the environment, then you should want to produce the barrels here where we can control it. <laughs> Why would you want to produce it in the Middle East where we have no, there's no governance there. You can't, I mean, they do whatever they want. There's no, so take it from like the ESG crowd. What do they care about? They care about social stuff. They care about the environment. They don't care. They, they don't care, care about, about control. They don't care about any of that shit. The, people that, are, about that the shit. people that are making the policy decisions, I think do care about control, but the average Joe who just wants to do good for the world, right? He care about these things like, in, you know, the social, let's just pick on the social issues. It's like California is probably one of the most socially liberal places in the world, yet they're importing their energy from places where LGBTQ people are executed in the Middle East. They have no rights. Women have no rights. They don't care about the environment over there. And they're like, we'll just take our energy from them instead of producing it here where we have like the most socially liberal policies in the world. Well, then like you can get, it's like their socially liberal policies have made uh, California a complete shithole. That's why people are coming to Texas, uh, Florida, from right. California. Right. You look at San Francisco, Peter McCormick was tweeting a couple days ago, you can't even fucking park your car in the city of San Francisco without getting broken into because the social order of these socially liberal states is fraying at the seams. I wouldn't even go right now. I went to San Francisco like 15 years ago and I had like four or five, or now I'm probably three or four homeless incidents. We had one where a guy came in the restaurant, like just walked in the front and was like yelling at people, harassing people. And they had to like, take him out. We had multiple times at our hotel where they called and were like, everybody stay in their room. There's homeless people. They would break in and they would go steal food off of trays that were in the hallways. This was like 15 years ago. And then we had another guy like run up to us and like, you know, stop. And like, my dad was like, I'm gonna have to fight this guy. And then like ran off. It was like multiple instances of it. And that was, and I've heard from everybody anecdotally that it's gotten way worse since then. Yeah. And I that mean, was like 15 years ago. 2019, we, my wife and I landed for uh, Bitcoin 2019, the conference, but before the conference, we went to wine country for, for a lovely weekend away. Love wine country. However, we needed to spend a night in San Francisco before we left for wine country and literally landed at the airport at 10, get to our hotel uh, at 1030. We're valeting the car. First thing my wife sees, she gets out of the passenger seat, like getting ready to walk into our hotel room. And there's just some homeless dude jerking off on oh, the fucking steps. God. And we're just like, welcome to San Francisco. Jeez. Look at my dick. That's just like, I mean, it's not surprising. You know, you hear stories like this all the time, like shooting up drugs or whatever. It's like, 
I want to read uh, Schellenberger's new book. Um, Michael, if you're out there, I've been DMing you. I'd love to have you on the podcast. Yeah, he, uh, he, I tell you, he followed me on Twitter for like two seconds. It was like three memes later, he like unfollowed me. I yeah, like, I think oh. I might be a bit uncouth for him. Yeah, I was like, oh, sweet. I was like, Michael Schellenberger followed me. And then I posted like just a couple things. And then like later that day, he was like unfollowed. <laughs> I, was like, okay. I was like, sorry, dude. But um, thank you for the work you're doing to push nuclear energy generation. Yeah. Insane energy policy in the state of California and, and beyond in the United States and San Francisco. Sicko, uh, is, uh, I've read excerpts of it as a great book describing the, the complete devolution of, of that city. His Apocalypse Never book is good. I thought it was more about climate change than it is. It's really just more about like, all these different initiatives that you feel like you're doing something good. And then it turns out that like, you're not. And he goes through like a bunch of different things that he was like passionate about. I mean, like wanted to drop out of high school and like go move to like the work for the farmer's union in like South America or something. I don't know, maybe I'm butchering where he went, but he like has been a passionate, like social warrior or whatever and caring about these things, environmental Pro warrior. Progressive. Progressive until he got to the bottom of all these things. And this is kind of how I feel around energy where I tried like a couple of years ago to be like, hey, I'm going to be open-minded about, you know, it's like, look, I don't want to be in the whip and buggy business. If like there's really new tech that's going to change everything about energy, I want to be open-minded to it. I don't want to just be like, you know, shilling my, my industry. Because you don't want to be a Luddite. Right. I don't want to just be like shilling my industry because I love it, but not realizing that there's something new and better. So I've invested a ton of time into trying to understand all this new tech that's coming out. And ultimately what I found is that like a lot of, just kind of false advertising around it. I mean, a lot of it's the government's top down. It's really not accomplishing a lot of the goals. I mean, I think it's like two times as expensive to lower a, a ton of CO2 from renewables than it is from that gas. Like you could just use that gas. Like, I mean, like we could like literally, if that's really their goal. But then when you talk to people about it, like a guy yesterday uh, at the conference, like got all mad at me about it. We were like in a group and we were talking and there was one guy that just was like, I could see he was like boiling over and he was like, that's false. He's like, natural gas is a, you know, it's a false hope, like all this stuff, like it's gonna, basically it was like going off and I'm like, we can do it right now. No new tech, no new inventions. If you really want to lower emissions, we have the ability to do it. And then if you really want to do it, you could, uh, you could inject it into the ground after it's burned and the government could subsidize that if they wanted to. It's still going to make people's taxes. It's still going to be inflationary, right? But it could work. We don't have to invent anything new. And we could do it right now, but that's not happening. There's no motion forward stuff that doesn't work. There's no political or social will to do it because people are fucking they've been misled. Like you just wholeheartedly misled to believe things that aren't true. And like, again, like that's what we're trying to do at Cathedra. So we try to do here at this podcast, what you do at talk energy, your podcast, go subscribe freaks, uh, is highlight like this stuff isn't true. Energy is good for humans ability to harness and leverage energy to bring us our modern society is a beautiful thing that should be celebrated. Instead, it's maligned. And again, it's a bunch of Malthusians who hate you. If you listen to the Jesse Matchy episode yesterday, we go through it. Like the people really pushing these policies and these ideas onto the global populace are the Davos crowd who really don't care about the environment. They literally have throughout time, uh, the last five, six decades publicly stated that they think there should be less people on the planet. And one way to bring that about is to make energy secure, energy security insecure. Regardless of what motivations are, it's what's happening. So, I mean, we can say these people want this or they don't want this. Some people might get mad about that argument. It doesn't matter whether that's the, I mean, the actions are what's, you can look at the actions and you can see the outcomes. And one thing that I've really focused on lately is 
uh, energy poverty and understanding, you know, the other day, like I did like a thread in it and it like some got some engagement, but the, basically the point of it was like, look, if we can't save the people we have now, why are we so worried about a hundred or thousand years from now? We, there's like 2 billion people that don't even have base, don't even have electricity, have nothing. And then there's another billion something people that have basically like, you know, very, very little. I mean, they would be considered uh, energy poverty. Look at the deaths per year. I think it's like, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago and he said it, and I don't know where he got the stat, but he basically said around 10 million people a year, energy poverty that die, which is more than COVID, climate, malaria, and AIDS combined. And that's happening right now. And it's every year. And it's like, we're not seeing movies made about that. You're not seeing protests. And it's like, we can't even save the people on the planet today. So why are we so worried about the people? And it's like, let's just save the people we have now. Let's get them cheap, affordable, abundant energy, lift them up out of poverty. And what we found is that in these developed worlds, when that happens, things get cleaner. Like for a while, when you start to industrialize, it gets dirtier because you got, you industrialized. But then at some point, like look around here, like it's pretty clean. There's not smog everywhere. It's because we have, we, you create wealth and you take these poor nations, you make them wealthy and then they can focus on, uh, I, you know, in the thread I talked about, like right now, all these elites are like standing tippy toed at the top of Maslow's pyramid. And they're looking up even higher than that. They're basically being like, look up higher than the pyramid. We need to solve all these like existential things. And it's like, you guys need to look down. You've got all these people at the literal bottom rung of the pyramid. They can't even look up above that. They're just trying to make survive, like keep their families alive and like be able to cook. It's like, if you're cooking with wood in a wood burning stove inside a tiny hut, you're breathing in like two packs of cigarettes a day. There was some study that shows that like families, like children and women are breathing in the equivalent of two packs of cigarettes a day. It's like, let's solve that stuff today and then we'll figure it out. But I don't know, man. Yeah, it's a good point. Like those people that lower, <clears throat> that are stuck at those lower rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <clears throat> they literally can't look up at these existential, like woke, critical right. race theory, uh, social issues because they're literally looking down at the ground for firewood and drinkable water. Like, right. Like the, the they don't like, ah, oh, it's so frustrating. Like the people in the slums of Mumbai, like they don't care about climate change. Like that's the thing. Like the other day there was a prominent energy content guy, I won't call him out, but he was like saying that this is just the, this is what the world wants, which is decarbonization. And I was like, nah, not no. really. I was like, the world doesn't actually, I was like, there's like a small segment of the world, like the Western elites that want this. And I was like, but do you think these people in like, uh, impoverished areas of Africa, or like I said, like in India and these impoverished areas, like they're not worried about climate change at all. They're not even thinking about it. Like they, like to them, they're just like, what are you talking about? We're trying to get food on the table and survive. So the world doesn't really want this. And that's billions of people. We're not talking like the people that really care about the climate stuff is in the hundreds of millions. And there are if seven, that, if, if that, that, if that, and that's like, I'm basically saying everybody in these developed worlds. So if you just included everybody in the developed world, you're talking hundreds of millions of people but there are billions of people on the planet that need basic things to survive. And every unit of energy that we either make more expensive or take off the market, that makes it harder for them to pull themselves up. Because now like oil costs more or gas costs more or coal costs more. And <clears throat> it makes that even further away. It's the same with like the printing of the money and asset prices going up. It's like every time asset prices going up, it makes somebody who has no assets, it's even further away. It's getting insurmountable to close the gap for people. Yeah. No, it's even the people who claim to want to decarbonize the world are fucking LARPers because like today somebody tweeted me like, oh, your, your take on like energy, like we need to like go to renewables. Number one, what the fuck is a renewable? How much carbon goes into a, a, a coal a, a, a coal panel, as Steve Barber likes to call solar panels, it's made out of coal. Right. That is very hard to recycle and very dirty and very labor intensive on the front end. 
how do you recycle the the wind turbines? They're just they're filled with a bunch of chemicals and we're just burying them in the ground. That's not good. They have a, a life cycle that is not that is very finite, is not infinite. Uh, and then like number two, like people like who are tweeting at me, like, oh, your energy, like oil and gas is bad. Like we should be like moving away from it. It's like, and then you see at the bottom, like sent from Twitter for iPhone. It's like that iPhone's made of hydrocarbons. You fucking idiot. Like you don't want to reduce your carbon, <laughs> your, your carbon footprint at all. You're, you're LARPing, throw out your iPhone, throw out your computer, throw out your your clothes, your jackets, throw all that shit out because you're LARPing. If you truly believe it, put a leaf on your dick and go live in the woods because that's what you need to do if you want to actually decarbonize the world. An easy hill to die on is the hill where you vehemently oppose people that don't practice what they preach. Like that to me is a very one that I'm passionate about. And it's easy for me to be like, if you're not doing the things that you're saying, which nobody is, no. the environment, environmental movement, it's not a grand conspiracy. And people will try to say this, that it's something like, you know, government subsidized conspiracy that we use fossil fuels. It's like, no, we use them because they make our lives better. Like you're using it because you made a choice as a consumer. Like to your point, you could go find products and clothes and things that are not made from fossil fuels. They're going to suck because like we use the stuff that's made out of fossil fuels because it's awesome. Like it keeps us warm. It keeps us, you know, we're able to travel. We're able to do all these things. And, you know, if you really think about energy transitions, this is another topic that I've dove into. It's like, there's some certain boxes that energy transitions check. Like they're typically highly deflationary. Like they create something that lifts consumers up. If it's something that's not doing that, then it's not really a transition. It's just like, I mean, renewables is like, the, so the first energy transition was basically humans or our ancestors discovered fire and that allowed us to do a lot less work. We could get more energy. And then it was like the classic, the next one was like classic renewables, like uh, wind and, you know, basically using sails for ships and basic windmills and you know, they'd mill grain and they would do like, uh, bellows for smiths to make, you know, whatever iron works. And then it was, uh, you know, you had basically biomass and coal. I'm going to forget some of this, but essentially like it progressed into hydrocarbons and then it was starting to progress into nuclear. And I think like all of these had a similar theme where like it was making people's lives better and it was being deflationary. And then nuclear essentially has gotten stopped or, you know, mostly stopped. China's actually building a lot of nuclear, um, but I think that a real energy transition has got to be at the quantum level. It's going to be through like efficiency stuff, which may be quantum, quantum computing someday, but like just more efficiency. And then it's going to be through nuclear because it's the most energy dense and it's the most realistic way to do it. I think that the renewable stuff is just a, it's going to be a failed experiment in my opinion, because it just doesn't check enough boxes. And it doesn't get us there. It makes, it makes, it's inflationary, right? Yeah. It's and a you, step backwards. It's, it's more expensive, less reliable. It's fucking infuriatingly dumb. Like, and it's more emissions than nuclear right? Like we have the ability, we have the tech to like transition to a nuclear based economy. They can do even micro reactors. There's all these interesting things that could be done. There hasn't been the investment in the innovation in that space because no one wants to build one. It's taking now decades to get one built in the U S or a decade plus. And people are, then people point to that and they're like, Oh, it's not cost effective. It's like, it's not cost effective because we've regulated it to not be cost effective. Yeah. And what is the regulatory body around nuclear in the United States? They haven't okayed a nuclear project in something like 50 years. Right. And it's like, it's the same thing that happened with, it, there's some other just ironic things. It's the same reason why we can't mine for renewables here. It's like, it's so dirty to mine for renewables, which are what supposedly- What do you mean by mining for renewables? We can't get like the raw materials. We can't mine for like the minerals. The rare earth the rare, It's rare earth. And it's like uh, lithium for batteries and uh, copper, even copper, like these basic things that we need. There's just not a lot of mining in the US. The US has like made it prohibitively uh, regulatory to be able to mine here. So this is why countries like China do it. 
And it's our, the irony is that it's like, look, to go green, we have to do something that we consider so dirty in the US, we won't even do it here. Yeah. It's like, well, wait a second. And then it's like the other thing around energy independence with oil. People always say, well, we're not energy independent. We still have to import all these barrels of oil. The reason why we import oil is because they won't let us build new refineries, can't permit a new refinery. So we've got older refineries that are teed up for a certain type of crude quality. And now we have to import barrels to be able to blend them to even refine things here. So people argue, see, we're not energy independent. We can't. It's like, we're not energy independent because they've regulated us to the point where we can't even build the right kind of refinery. So a lot of these things come back to central planning and messing it up. And if it were just the free markets, um, it'd be a different energy landscape completely. Freaks. It, it, we have the ability to bring about a abundant, cheap energy to the masses here in the United States, potentially the world. Just it, the, for some reason, where like Max just explained, the central planners are preventing us from bringing that world to fruition. Like, and and people get mad at me. They're like, "Oh, oil and gas." I'm like, "I'm a nuclear maximalist too. I want all the nuclear plants. Like, that is arguably the cleanest energy. Like, no." No CO2 output, right? Like outside of the construction of the reactors and the cement, like that's the most CO2 intensive part of the whole uh, operation in a nuclear plant. The waste is manageable too. I mean, they, you know, I think that where you do nuclear first is you do it in first world countries because we have more, you know, you want to regulate the waste. Like the waste, people could get it and make like a dirty bomb. Like you don't want like Iran getting, they're probably going to get a bomb anyways, but you don't want countries that would use the nuclear waste for a nefarious act to have it. So you know, focus on the first world countries, which by the way, they're the ones emitting all the CO2 anyway. So it's like these third world countries give them access to natural gas, even coal. Coal's gotten a heck of a lot cleaner. I mean, from an emission standpoint, it's way better than it was in like the 60s and 70s. So get these emerging economies access to cheap. And I hate using the word clean, but you know, I, I would consider natural gas clean, get them access to that, help lift them up. And then for these developed countries, get them nuclear reactors where they can responsibly get rid of the waste. And we can get to these emissions goals, but we're not doing any of that. Not doing any of that. We're well, trying to stop all those things from happening. Actually, well, then think of that. Like you said, like Iran with a with a bomb and shit like that. But like again, if we if we bring this cheap, abundant energy to the masses, like the the potential for conflict, hot wars reduces because there's less things to fight over because people are economically comfortable. They're 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 not lashing out at an other to to get resources to provide for themselves. Like that's arguably what's going on with, with like Russia, Ukraine, and Europe right now. And that whole yeah. debacle is Europe has the no political will to actually leverage the natural resources they they have below their their con or continent, their countries, whatever you want to say. Uh, and, and so they're dependent on Russia. Now they're getting mad at Russia because prices are going up and Russia's playing hardball. It was like, yeah, we got the gas. Like you got to meet us at the negotiating table. And now people are like, we're going to go to war with Russia because it's all over the energy. Their energy is a very strong component of it. And don't fucking blame Russia. Blame yourselves for being a bunch of fucking hypocrites and shutting down reliable energy generation over the last two decades, particularly in Germany, uh, and, and not having the will to actually bring cheap energy to your people that exist on your land. Like we live in a clown world. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that I tweeted, you know, that the Ukraine conflict was a failed energy policy and a bunch of people pointed out all the nuances around it and how that's not really the case, but it's certainly a factor in why, in the way that it's being handled and that the way certainly countries like Germany that rely on Russia gas and Russia has been weaponizing it. I mean, they've been just, Putin's just been playing Europe so hard. It's like, oh, I am flowing gas. And then like, 
oh, we were going to give you guys more. And then like gas is down the next month and prices are shooting up. And, you know, it's like, he's just messing with them. And so I'm not going to say the whole conflict is over that, but it's certainly a chip on his side of the table that's allowing him to do a lot more things that he probably wouldn't be able to do uh, otherwise, because I think countries like Germany would probably take a harder stance and be like, no, nah, I don't do this. And they can't, or at least there's an element of that they can't because they're relying on Russia for energy. I mean, energy is like sovereignty in a lot of ways. If you look back, I mean, a lot of the wars and the things we've done uh, have been around energy. And people talk now about how the future, like if we really did go to this like renewable-based uh, thing, we'd be having, we'd be, the Middle East would be like Africa. We'd be fighting over mines for like rare earth and all this stuff. There'd be like wars and it would shift the wars. It's like, why not just use the resources we have here? Europe has a lot of resources too. They've banned fracking in like almost all these countries. You can't even go exploit them. Um, it's, it's artificially creating scarcity and it's, it's inflation. I mean, it drives inflation too. I mean, getting back to Bitcoin, I mean, we talk about the money printer. There's other ways to drive inflation. And this whole like stranglehold on energy is highly inflationary. And it, back to my point around transitions, it shouldn't be. If we're having a transition, it should be the opposite. It should be deflationary. And I think that the point of it may be to be inflationary because when things happen, like, look at, like I mean the other day, I was like, First, you have failed energy policy. I was like, and then I was like, socialism, right? And I'm half joking, but like, look at Europe right now. It's like, they're having to subsidize, pay people's energy bills because they failed as leaders. And so now they're having to basically socialize energy price. It's just, it's like, and if that's the goal, which is more centralized planning, then maybe that is, I don't know, being like a conspiracy theorist, but like, maybe that is the goal. Hey, hey, we, we embrace conspiracy theorists here at TFTC. <laughs> People... Men and women of power conspire to do things and to fuck over the common men. It's been proven throughout history. You can go read a history book, and it's pretty obvious that that shit happens. And we would be naive to think that it's not happening today. And again, going back to the Davos class, these people openly talk about hating the average man. You will own nothing, and you will be happy. Right. You own nothing, and you will be happy. You're going to eat the bugs. You're going to stay in your pod. <laughs> You're going to use this unreliable solar and wind. You know what? You might go cold a few nights a year, but that's the sacrifice you have to make so that we can fly around in our private jets and tell you what to do. It's, it's time to begin fighting back earnestly, peacefully against this stuff. And I hope that sensible conversations that try to lay out the nuance of the energy landscape can help with that. Like, again, like you said, we have the ability to do this. We just don't have the will energy transitions should be deflationary, which a nuclear transition would certainly be. And it was when it was being allowed to happen. Well, you can see it already. Look at like France versus, I mean, France has more nuclear than Germany and it's just like it directly correlates to lower uh, energy costs. And if you look at like the renewables, everybody wants to point to like LCOE or whatever, levelized cost of energy, which is just a fake accounting way yeah, to say fiat like- Fiat fucking right, accounting. Right, and so it's like, they can say solar is, you know, by far the cheapest energy source. So they'll show these graphs, right? Where solar like plunges and now it's better than natural gas and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, like maybe when the sun's shining, like at the equator, you know, like, I mean, it's like, sure, it's probably pretty cheap then. Um, but if you look at where they've been implemented across the board, Germany now, their energy prices are way higher and they're actually burning, they're actually emitting more CO2 than they did all before they did all these renewables because they've had to rely on coal. They've had to import more gas. They've done other things that it's like, it gets back to this like, it's almost the opposite of what people, these policies, they do like the opposite, essentially. Like as soon as like central planning comes in and tries to not let the free market do it, like it's like the reverse effect happens. It's not in my backyard. They push pollution out. I mean, we can hit on China for being this biggest pollute, polluter with coal, 
well, why are they the biggest polluters? Because they make everything. (laughs) We pushed all of our production to them. And why do they make everything? Because we made it prohibitively expensive to make it here because of things like cap and trade in Canada and these other things where it's like, you can't, you know, it's too expensive to emit CO2 or carbon. So we just do it over there. Right. And then we LARP about how we've lowered our emissions. Like, no, you haven't. You've just like (laughs) sent it over to China. You've exported them. You've exported your industry and your emissions to, to China. Congrats. Congrats, policymakers. I ho- and congrats to you environmentalists out there. I hope you feel good about yourselves. And that's another thing. Like I saw a dude tweet, I think his name was Adam McKay or something like that. I don't know who he is, but he sent like this tweet, like trying to like make a, a pithy comment about the impending doom of within six or seven years, we don't drastically change our carbon emissions. The world is going to fall, hit a tipping point where there's no turning back and the environment's going to completely collapse. And it's like, how could you believe this? Like people have been saying this for decades, for centuries almost, and it's not true. Like the world is fine. The Maldives were supposed to be under the ocean a decade ago. They're building new airports for more people to come in and enjoy the Maldives. Like these people using these fear-mongering tactic, tactics telling you that climate change is going to destroy the earth are not right. They have been terribly wrong for decades. Greta Thunberg, what did she, I think, believe it was four years ago, she said in 12 years, uh, we're going to hit that tipping point where there's no turning back. What happens when we get to uh, eight years from now? So we get to 2030 and nothing happens. Like, are we going to recalibrate? Are we going to look at the predictions these people made? Highlight that they've been terribly wrong. They did not come to fruition and then stop listening to them. Like, at what point do we stop listening to these Malthusians who have been terribly, terribly wrong for decades? And again, this is the frustrating part about this conversation because I am an environmentalist. I do want to be energy efficient. I do not want to pollute. I want to make sure that I leave the world a better place than I, than I entered it. And like, that is not mutually exclusive from using hydrocarbons and bringing cheap, abundant energy to the masses. Like that's the frustrating and really the genius part of the climate hysterics is they've, if they've basically framed it where they, they say like using hydrocarbons uh, and, and having uh, and being an environmentalist are mutually ex- exclusive, which they're not. Well, and I mean like, you know, you can look at what I hate to say things like look at the science because that's such a thing that people say all the time to make an argument. And I just, I hate that term. But what I've tried to do is actually look at like uh, these different reports, like these climate reports and these studies. And what I've found by reading them and some of them like the IPCC is like 3000 pages for the actual physical sciences part of it. It's a lot of pages, but I've gone through like each one of the sections and looked at kind of, they have a summary in those and then they have a summary for policymakers in there and you can read it. And nowhere did I find at all them mentioning the word climate crisis. They didn't mention that. They didn't mention the apocalypse. They don't mention the end of the world. They don't mention all of species dying. They talk about very specific, like this percentage statistical chance that we could see increased droughts in certain regions of the earth, this percentage statistical chance that we could see increased whatever fire risk or flood risk or whatever. It's all very like scientific and it lays out these different uh, probabilities that these things could happen. And that's fine. Like CO2 is a greenhouse gas. I mean, sure. Like the planet is getting warmer. We can show at least recently it has, but let's talk about it in real terms or trade-offs. So, okay. If there's more drought, maybe there's a cost to that, right? What's that cost? versus the money that we're spending on the Paris Accord. It's like, we need to have a nuanced conversation about this stuff. It's not that I don't think that CO2 could make the planet warmer. It's just that when I hear the talking points like on Twitter and in the mainstream media, it's that the apocalypse is happening. And people will comment on my Twitter. I'm like, show me the study that says that. And then they'll post some like 
you know, activist speech from like a college or whatever. I'm like, no, no, that's an activist. Show me the study that quotes that. Well, this professor over here, well, that's a professor. That's not a peer reviewed. Like there's no, none of the official reports that they're using at the policy level are talking about the end of the world. They're talking about very measured things that, okay, if it goes up this much, this will happen. So everything's nuanced. And it's not that like we can't have an impact on the planet. We can, but the reality is we've been safer than climate than ever recently. The last hundred years, climate deaths have dropped like 98%. And that's primarily driven by fossil fuels and the ability to protect ourselves and buildings and having climate controlled and climate protected things like concrete, right? Like if you are on a island like Haiti and you live in a concrete house versus a stick built house and a hurricane hits, you're, you're going to live in the concrete house. And in areas where we have modernized energy and modernized structures that we need energy like fossil fuels to make concrete, people live from climate. So it's just, it needs to be a nuanced discussion. And I'm not seeing anywhere in the literature where we're, the apocalypse is being predicted. Yeah. I don't see that anywhere. Yeah, it's again, these Malthusians, one of the fear is one hell of a you know, mechanism to leverage to, to make people do certain things, idiotic things, self-deprecating things like <laughs> transitioning to less reliable and less energy dense energy sources like wind and solar. And, and then again, like, like they, again, using fear, like you mentioned wildfires, drought, the, the ungreening of the world or a few of them that they, they lean at the bleaching of the coral reefs, the coral reefs. Like you go down wildfires, uh, Australia a few years ago had those massive wildfires and were like climate change, climate change, climate change. When you dig in, they, the fucking Australian government didn't allow farmers to do controlled burns for a decade. And so you had a decade of brush buildup that, that basically created tinder for those massive wildfires. A policy that had the opposite effect. This goes back to that theme, policies they put in that do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Yes. Number one, coral reefs bleaching. Yes, coral reefs ebb and flow. They bleach, but then they come back again. Like the Great Barrier Reef, again, back in Australia. That professor who basically came out has been studying the Great Coral Reef his whole fucking career he came out last year and was like, Hey guys, like you're saying that the coral reef is dying, but it's actually been like thriving the last few years fired. Wrong think bad think out. Uh, what else can we go to drought? Like in the, the ungreening of the world, number one, the world has become significantly more green over the last True. five decades. And then you can do things like grazing, roaming cattle to re like, you can do things to, to bring more grassland to the to land masses like it's just like an again it's an inability and an or unwillingness to actually do these sensible policies or these sensible things I mean, they shouldn't even have to be implemented with policy like we should just have ro roaming grazing cattle that are doing regenerative greening uh across the land but instead like we due to the regulatory structure of the united states specifically like we're forced uh, far ranchers, a lot of ranchers are forced to raise their cattle in a certain way and process their cattle in a specific way too that does not allow them to do that regenerative grazing. And again, the solutions are here. We can we can we can foster the environment in a very good way. We can pollute less. We can be as efficient as possible with the energy that we're that we're creating. Bitcoin mining helps that immensely, and we can all thrive like it's it's possible but again it's an unwillingness at the at the policy level these these central planners are destroying the world in front of us and that's why i get so passionate people yell at me they call me uh anti-science they say i'm a climate change denier blah 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 like just 
look at everything, think critically, do not take, like, look at what happened the last two years with COVID. Now they're all backtracking. They all lied to you, say, trust the science, trust right. us, we're experts, we're experts, we're experts. They're all fucking wrong. They destroyed the global economy. They increased depression rates, increased addiction rates, increased deaths. Inflated away everybody's money. Inflated away everybody's money. And these are the same fucking people telling you that the world is going to end if you don't, if you may, if you don't make your worst life, your life worse off by using less energy. These people are lying to you. There are ways to be an environmentalist and to leave the world a better place than you came into it. And we just need to begin acting and, and creating the will to leverage the sources, the resources that are available to us. It's time freaks. Yeah, the problem is that this, these fear-based narratives are so effective um, and they're so, hard to, they're so hard to combat, you know? I mean, like I, I almost look at energy like I do... Um, it's like when I, I made this analogy before I look up in the sky and you see all these stars and planets and you're overwhelmed by it. And you're like, I can't even wrap my head around, you know, black holes and all these things. And, I, and that's one, that's an extreme example of that feeling. I think people get that feeling when they look at energy, like they don't understand how their lights come on every day. They look around, they see all these wires and these things and they hear stuff like, oh, so everything can be powered on solar or everything. And they, they, they hear these really nice cookie cutter answers that are great sound bites. And then when you couple those amazing sound bites with in great marketing with a bunch of fear that's oh and by the way if you don't believe this um, the world's gonna end and, and you're the, a racist and yeah and you're a denier the other day I said it I said if you're using the argument calling someone a denier I was like that's what people do when they argue about religion not science you don't call people deniers you call that like that's like a faith thing yeah right? like you deny the book of whatever like some religious type of argument like that doesn't seem like the right kind of argument repent for science for science should be like a critical questioning and having conversations, but nobody's doing that. And to be fair, people just want to go to work. They want to, you know, live their life. And unfortunately they're bombarded with a bunch of uh, bad info. And that's why these conversations are important. Yeah, these are important. This is uh, propaganda of another kind. We're actually trying to propagandize good information. Not, and we're not trying to scare you. We're actually trying to paint a good picture of the future. Hey, we can have beautiful things. We can, we can thrive as society. That's, that's the picture we're trying to paint here. We're not trying to tell you that you're bad and that you're destroying the world and that your children are going to fall into the ocean in the future. I don't like moralizing anything, really. I mean, there's very few, I mean, obvious, there's obvious bad things that you can moralize, but like certain types of crime. But, you know, in terms of like consumer choices, I put a moral framework around that. Oh, you can't have, you can have Christmas lights, but you can't Bitcoin mine. Well, that's like, that's the funny thing. Like I got into... Not arguments or anything. I mean, like in the Bitcoin mining industry, Elizabeth Warren's like, I want comments from the top six mining companies in the United States on what they're doing. And then like people in the Bitcoin mining industry at the public level were like, oh, here's what we're writing. We're going to write to her. I'm like, this is what you tell Elizabeth Warren. It's none of your fucking business. I'll do whatever the fuck I want. I'm paying for my electricity. Fuck off. Like, I don't owe you shit. I am buying this. Right. I'm buying this energy. I'm turning it into electricity. I'm mining Bitcoin with it. This is a free fucking country. She flies around on private jets. Yeah. Like, get out of here. You show us, Elizabeth, what your energy yeah. usage is. Yeah, exactly. I don't owe you shit. Shut the fuck up. Like, it's just, it's just, it's, she's, it's all this LARPing grandstanding. So then she can point to that and be like, look, I stuck it to the Bitcoin mining industry. It's just, it's and she's all, backed by the bankers too. Right. Yeah. That's the problem though. Um, it's very difficult to have what the, the issue is, is that when you inject, and she's a liar. She said yeah, she was she a fucking lie. Native American. Like, why the fuck do we care? I'm getting pissed off now. Like, why do we care what Elizabeth Warren thinks? I don't owe you shit, Elizabeth Warren. I will do whatever I want with the electricity I pay for. No, she's uh, she's one of the worst. It's hard to it's hard to listen to her and uh, see her takes. They're terrible. And it's about everything, right? 
It's about like anytime like food prices are up, oh, price gouging, oil prices are up, oh, price rigging. It's never the central planner's fault. If you'd have just let me, if basically her message is, if you'd have just let me do all this, all this messed up stuff wouldn't happen. That's essentially what she's saying about yeah. everything. Every industry, it's always comes back to, well, just give us the power. I promise we won't screw it up. It's like your track record is you are screwing it up. Yeah. So like, why would, and like the other day I had this thought, I think like maybe Hike said it on one of our pods, but it was like, knowing what I know about how bad energy policy is and how just backwards it is and wrong and the amount that they promoted in a wrong way, you didn't start to think like, what about everything else? Yeah. If they're this wrong about this. And this is something that I know about, so I know they're wrong, but I don't, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a, you know, whatever, these other issues. I'm not an expert on these. I am, like, consider myself, try to be an expert on energy. And if I know they're that wrong about this, then what else are they wrong about? Yeah, it's similar to money. Like, I came from an economics background, worked uh, focusing on central banking and their policies, found out it was terribly wrong. And you know, the policies that they're thrusting on the masses are, are highly detrimental to quality of life and ability to, to save in the long term. And then Bitcoin's like, all right. And then you see how they talk about Bitcoin. You see how they talk about Bitcoin mining, just off base, off base, wrong, wrong, wrong. And it's like it's, it's these everything people, they're saying is wrong about Bitcoin. They're incompetent. Wake up, <laughs> get out. <laughs> Get out. They have you under a spell. These people are fucking incompetent sociopaths. It's the way the system is it's set up to be. It's a soundbite. We're in a soundbite world. Information, like the rise of the sovereign individual and some of the themes in that book, like people are getting access to more ability to learn the right things. The problem is they're getting bombarded with a lot of bad stuff too. Yeah. So you got to find the, noise, the signal. The noise right? is, is very, drowns out the signal. You got to be, hopefully we're providing signal here. Oh. I hope so. I think the energy content's been good. Like I had people come up to me at this conference and I rarely get this. So I'm doing the podcast for a year, but like thanking me and being like, I learned stuff from it. And I, I feel positive. Like I, I feel like it's making an impact. And, uh, and I think people want to learn and they want to hear dissenting opinion. So people that are honest intellectually, they want to hear dissenting opinions. If you're only hearing opinions that agree with you, then you're not learning anything. You, you should be uncomfortable with some of the conversations that you're having. Agreed. Agreed. You have to. People are like, oh, you, you oil and gas show. Like, I want to hear the, the solar and, and wind turbine arguments. I have heard them. They're not convincing. They're well, not. Well, and the outcomes aren't convincing. You look at, no. what, I mean, you can tell me on paper that this is the best source of energy, but when you look at what it's doing, look at Texas's grid. I mean, it's having big time problems. Bitcoin miners could help solve some of it, but the problems in the first place are caused by all the intermittency. Yeah, it's like that. That's the problem. Well, now that's, well let's get into this. We, I wanted to bring it up earlier when you mentioned demand response and ERCOT. Like, it's a big meme now. Texas Bitcoin mining capital of the world. Woo! But he's demand. And Steve Barber had a good thread about this last week. Like everybody, all like, and again, I like as I think we have the truth on our side as Bitcoiners, but there is a narrative nuance to be aware of, and I think there is the potential for Bitcoiners right now to be setting. Uh, setting up for a bad narrative in the future is specifically around demand response. Like demand response in theory works very well and does make sense. You, you, you overbuild capacity on the grid so that miners can consume electricity. And then when peak demand hits and the grid, uh, residential consumers leveraging the grid need more electricity, you turn off your, your miners, then you sell that electricity back to the grid for a profit that's higher than you would get mining Bitcoin. That's an economic incentive and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a free free market solution to an energy delivery problem uh, and miners should make money for that. But the, the electricity generation should be sitting on top of reliable baseload energy and natural gas 
and nuclear, even coal. But like what's happening in Texas right now, even with the demand response program, like a lot of the capacity is being built out to supply that that excess capacity is wind and solar. And that's not, you can build out as much wind and solar capacity as you want, but if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine like it did, like like what happened last February here in Texas, like you can have a thousand gigawatts, whatever that equates to right. on like the next scale of capacity, but that's not going to do shit for you. So like if you're pushing demand response and you're pushing Bitcoin miners helping out a grid, make sure that the, the base load energy providing that electricity is reliable energy, is nuclear, natural gas, or even coal over wind and solar. You can supplement it with wind and solar, but that should not be the main energy sources that you're you're leveraging for these demand response programs. It's like a, the capacity in the renewable space is kind of a ghost, right? Like you can show a huge capacity number, but if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining and you need it, it's non-dispatchable. Like that's great. You have like 700 megawatts of solar installed, but if it's a cloudy day and it's freezing outside, then that's just ghost capacity. It's, 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 it's wasteful. And then the other thing about it is that number one, it's regressive because it causes the prices of energy to go up, which we talked about earlier. Um, number two, it's like, it doesn't, solve these problems that we, we need more energy that's reliable when we need it, not just like this intermittent energy uh, that can fail us uh, at these different times. And so, I don't know, I could go on and on about it. Like the reality is it's happening and it seems to be, this is what people want. Okay, fine. Build more nat gas and coal or nuclear too, because if not, it's going to be a bad outcome for us. It yeah. just is. Yeah. We're seeing it play out in Europe. I hope you guys like this conversation. Max has got to get too. Nape, I've got to do something in 10 minutes and I've got to pee before that. So we got to wrap up. It was a quick rip. That was fun. I think it was, it was dense. Fun. That was good. It was, it was fun. Hey, yeah. we're, we're peaceful environmentalists. We're here to try to make the world better, freaks. That's right. Providing energy. That's what I've done. I mean, I'm not like out there turning the wrench, but I'm, in, I'm a cog in that wheel and I, and I feel good morally about it. Um, good, you should. I do. Where can we find out more about you? Uh, websites, talk.energy. You can subscribe to the YouTube, uh, the Talk Energy Podcast, or my Twitter is max underscore Gagliardi, which is another good way. Go forth and bring about abundant cheap energy, freaks. Peace and love.